This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. From WMPG, this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and today we continue our series on post-traumatic stress disorder among women who have served in the military. The VA estimates that one in four women in the military suffer from military sexual trauma, defined as sexual assault or protracted sexual harassment that occurs while they're on active duty. But for so many, the rape is just the beginning of the nightmare, as they encounter lack of help, denial, retaliation, and even punishment for reporting the crime. Today we'll be hearing part two of my interview with Kate Weber. On last week's show, which you can listen to on our website, safespaceradio.com, Kate told the story of being raped by another soldier who threw her from a fire escape, injuring her back. When she told her battle buddy, she was accused of lying. And when she went to the doctor, she did not get a physical exam, nor did he use a rape kit to get evidence. Afterward, she was shunned by members of her unit and later forced to get HIV testing by the rapist who was afraid to give his wife an STD. She described feeling totally alone and vulnerable with no support as an 18-year-old young woman far from home. According to a report out this week from Human Rights Watch, many sexual assault survivors who report the assault are given a discharge from the military that labels them as a problem. It hurts their chances of future employment and of obtaining VA benefits and is virtually impossible to challenge. And it's right at this very issue that we resume my conversation with Kate. My discharge was honorable weight control failure. And that was nine months after the rape. What does that mean? I gained 10 pounds after the rape. And uh, I couldn't do the physical fitness that was required of me because of my injuries. Although they really didn't acknowledge my injuries, they did give me a pass to do different things instead of running. And so um, I gained 10 pounds. And sadly, I mean, just heartbreakingly, um, my lieutenant, who was, you know, a 27-year-old adult, came to my barracks and had sexual relations with my roommate while I was home. My roommate was 17 years old, and he was her commander. And that's considered fraternization, and that doesn't work. You know, that's, that can't happen. And um, as a result of my witnessing that and confronting the lieutenant about what he had done and that he wasn't you know, welcome in my home, he discharged me. I was off that base within four days of catching him in bed with my roommate. Four days I was out of Germany. So when I was raped, they couldn't send me home to my mom. But catch the lieutenant in the sack with your roommate, and you can be out in four days flat. Wow. So you, you're basically discharged for being a whistleblower. Absolutely. And that's, you know, weight control failure is... You know, also kind of a name-calling way to kick me out. Absolutely. To, to say that to a woman in our culture is... Oh, I've been sitting um, on that paperwork. Weight control failure is my label. I mean, that has been a terrible label for me. As a result of this, I believe that I packed on a ton of weight to try to protect myself from another assault. Five years ago, I had gastric bypass surgery, and I've lost 150 pounds. When it happened to me, I was the most physically fit I have ever been in my life. I couldn't fight him off then, so I felt like it didn't matter how strong I was. I kind of just gave up on 
you know, everything. Kate, you may know this, but actually the majority of people who are significantly overweight have suffered some form of sexual violation. Yeah, I'm finding that out. It's a way of becoming, in a way, not sexually vulnerable because you're mm. not as desirable to other people. A kind exactly. of a kind of exactly. protective invisibility. Yeah. So you may know that the research on trauma is very clear that one of the biggest predictors of going on to develop PTSD is the way in which you are believed when you first try to tell people about what happened to you. And so your story is so profound because I, I can't help but wonder, and I imagine you have been haunted by this, how different your life could have been if the doctor, if, the, if your battle buddy, if the doctor had believed you and taken you seriously and supported you and given you care. How have you coped with the ways in which you were failed by those people and by the system? Mm. It's been tough. I mean, I've definitely, I dove in headfirst to the resources available to me through the VA uh, where I live. And that has been a tremendous help. It's also evolved over the last 20 years. I mean, I walked in there as a brand new discharged, you know, veteran saying, you know, I was raped and I need support and I need help. And they said, we'll give it to you, but we don't really have anything about PTSD that we can, you know, give you as a workbook. But here's this book called Mind Over Mood, and it's for bipolar disorder, but it will really help with PTSD stuff, too. And so I went from that to now I'm in uh, some anger management videos with the VA that are online that are available to veterans who are at home and isolating with PTSD who can't really leave home comfortably and are able to access the VA's anger management website and get some of the tools that they need to even just step out the door and start getting, you know, medical and mental health treatment. So I've been able to work through my anger management by just taking class after class, including male um, males being in my class and my group. And that has also been extremely healing for me. How has that been healing? I think my fear of the veterans, you know, the male veterans being that my rapist got away with it and so many others rapists got away with it. You know, I've just been afraid. And now that I have all these big brothers and I've spent some time with them, I really do have some solid relationships with some really good guys at my local VA clinic, but they aren't in San Francisco when I go to those big appointments. So that's kind of a challenge, you know, is how do I go to the big hospital? And that's where all the bad things have happened, you know, to me. I need a refill on my Prozac. So I go to the VA hospital during the day to go pick up my Prozac prescription, and I'm sexually assaulted by a veteran in front of a bunch of people. Kate. You know, it was a verbal assault with physical attributes because he was kind of cornering me. And I was scared because, again, I was surrounded by bystanders. Right. You know, I had like probably 10 different male veterans in the same entrance way of this VA hospital when this happened. And nobody got up to help me or interfere or stop him or anything. As a matter of fact, he was protected. I was told he was arrested and that I would be safe coming back on campus. But when I came back on campus, he was allowed to attack me again. And that, I think, is where the 
re-traumatization for me happened. Right. I think we often forget that the word assault actually refers to verbal assault, that battery is actually a physical assault. It was so embarrassing, too, you know, because I've already been through so much. And when I go into the VA hospital, you know, I kind of just try to mind my own business because I know that a lot of the predators that were in when I was in are now veterans in the waiting room. And I've already experienced that many times over the last 20 years. I mean, I've been exposed to, I've been propositioned, um, I've been, you know, laughed at um, for seeking, you know, for being in the dental clinic and the male veteran sitting next to me will say, are you here for your husband? And I'll say, no, I'm here for myself. And in order to receive dental care from the VA, you must be 100% service connected. So then their next question is, well, what happened to you? You know, so I'm supposed to have some war story for these guys to tell them why I qualify for dental care. You know, so I just tell them the truth. <laughs> and it usually makes their face bright red. And it usually leads to a very interesting and educational conversation. Because I, I don't let veterans walk away from me asking me that question without knowing how many of us there are and how you shouldn't ask people those personal questions about their disabilities. Right. They don't realize even what they're getting into. No, they don't. So what you're telling me is that when you walk into the VA, you feel vulnerable because people are exposing themselves to you, making sexual comments to you, asking you inappropriate personal questions. Yes. I have a fear of that every time I go. And the VA provides me a caregiver that comes to my house like 12 hours a week. And she's not allowed to travel with me to the VA San Francisco, which is an hour and a half away, to go to my appointments. So I bring my 10-year-old son or a girlfriend, or somebody with me. I never go alone. I'm too afraid to go alone. One of the hallmarks of PTSD is that things that remind, remind you of the trauma, mm -hmm. or, you know, it, it can be tiny reminders, um, can often trigger a real exacerbation, a flare. Uniforms used to do that to me. But I couldn't have... I wouldn't have been able to do any of my advocacy work if I didn't overcome that. So I worked really hard to push myself to be with active duty people that I trusted and start really just kind of being around them and kind of my own form of exposure therapy, you know? What would happen and, when you would see someone wearing a uniform? Oh, man. I mean, I, I think it was just all physical stuff. My heart would just start pounding and... You know, even if I saw like a military convoy on the freeway or just anything having to do with the military for at least 15 years after the rape, I was triggered by all that stuff and I tried to avoid it. Uh, even going to the VA clinic and seeing somebody in there in uniform would just kind of set off my PTSD. Usually I would turn around the other way and cancel my appointment or just not show up. I really didn't want to be around anyone having to do with the military. I didn't even look at rank anymore. I just thought everyone was evil. <laughs> and um, that was my way of coping with it for a long, long time. Were there any other things other than uniforms that would really set you off? Oh, yeah. Oh, I could not stand if a man paid attention to me. Still to this day. I don't like it. I just don't want that kind of attention. I don't mind if someone says that I'm cute or something. But I don't like it when strangers private message me and say, like, hey, pretty girl, or I just don't, I can't handle it. So I, I block and delete people, like, all the time. 
Right, because being treated that way was such a preface to actually violence and sexually derogatory language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I, a way of protecting myself, for sure. Yeah, I can appreciate it. So I want to switch gears now and talk about the advocacy and the work that you are doing for other survivors. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, so... The movie The Invisible War came out in 2013 and was nominated for an Oscar. And um, it was a life-changing time for me because um, I got to see myself in a different way. Um, I saw myself in a group of people. I was no longer alone. And I also saw my weight as my protection mechanism. And that was really empowering. I was able to, you know, make a decision to change that. Um, but I felt like we all did such a great job at explaining how trying it was just to stay on the planet after that happened, that um, I wanted to use that movie as a training tool. And I began to kind of immerse myself into my own community here and find out what the local Coast Guard is doing about rape and what is the National Guard doing? And I really kind of stuck my nose in there and tried to see what everyone was doing um, differently than what had been done before. And I noticed a lot of changes had been made. They just, unfortunately, they gave military service members a title of sexual assault response coordinator, but didn't give them any authority to do anything about it. So progressively, you know, over time with education, they're gaining more and more responsibility for the victim and helping them connect with all the resources they'll need in order to heal to keep their military jobs, which, you know, they do have a choice or not. But if you choose not to stay in, they're not just going to discharge you. You're still going to stay there for a while and the paperwork has to get done. And then it becomes the whole discharge process. And it's just it's just a nightmare. So a lot of people I know have gone AWOL after sexual assault, absent without leave. Because their rapist, you know, is right there on their ship, you know, and they can't get away from them. So now, 20 years later, their paperwork says AWOL and they can't get any VA benefits. They can't get counseling. They can't get anything. And so what we've been able to do is explain to Washington, D.C. and the VA what proof these people can give you. And it's not their fault that they don't have proof. You know, it's unfortunate that nobody pressed charges. But here we go with what we've got. And now we are a year into that. And one of our male MST survivors who's been denied VA benefits this whole time and never been able to see a counselor, finally, with the help of a couple of different organizations, was able to get his discharge made into an honorable discharge and um, he doesn't have to ever look at something like I have to look at on my paperwork ever again. It doesn't say the lie, you know, absent without leave or weight control failure or personality disorder. You know, um, that label sticks with you forever. That discharge paper is something that every employer for the rest of your life will ask you for. Are you serious? I didn't know that. Yeah. So your DD-214, your discharge paper, um, there are two versions. One version doesn't say why you were discharged, and the other one does say. And, you know, if you don't turn in the one that does say, then what are you hiding? And so, you can't, can you get that changed, Kate? Um, now that I'm 100% service-connected from the VA, I'm fighting so hard just to get them to 
give me acupuncture and chiropractic. Like I can't even get an authorization to be done in a timely manner. So the thought of even going back to a piece of paper that, you know, is, I know it's not true. You know, I know, I know that I, I had gained 10 pounds after being raped, but who wouldn't gain or lose and go crazy, you know? So, I mean, you know, I could change it. It would be a huge fight and I've already won, you know? So seeing that my friend's paper got changed and that now he can get benefits, that's the kind of paperwork that I want to help change, you know, is those folks who aren't able to access the benefits because they've been locked out of them. When you say I've already won, what have you won? Um, when I turned in my paperwork to the VA um, to tell them about the story, about what happened to me and all the, you know, other things... It was about a two-inch stack of paperwork and medical records, and I had to go through each one of them and decipher them, and then I had to categorize everything into a spreadsheet. I mean, it was ridiculous what the VA makes you do. You have to go over your whole rape all over again and explain everything. It took me four grueling months of isolation and substance abuse to get that out of me. It was terrible. To get what out of you? to get the, the VA claim out of me, to talk about the rape, to write about the rape, to, to give the VA the information that they needed in order to give me benefits so I could heal. And when was so, this, Kate? 2003. So in 2003, which is years afterward, mm -hmm. you decide to fight the VA to get your benefits. Yes. What was it that inspired you to take that on then? Illness, misery, and probably my research over the years into sexual assault in the military and whether it was improving or not. And the more time that passed and the more I saw that it was still happening, the more I decided I deserved to be acknowledged by the D Department of Defense and the VA. And that I was going to go through all those medical records no matter how painful it was. And I did it bawling my eyes out every single day for four months. But I, I got it done. And um, I was approved at 100% service connection, which is really rare. So usually they'll give you like 80%, maybe 70. And then you'll have to fight back for the other 30%. But with me, they gave me 100% straight off. I just think they realized they didn't want to mess with me anymore. I just needed the help. Yes. Kid, uh, so often we know that people become despairing and often have thoughts of suicide or even attempt suicide. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you struggled with? Oh, definitely. I mean, in one way, I feel like the VA pharmaceuticals that I was on, and I was loaded. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I was so numb, I couldn't feel a thing. But you know, I, I definitely feel like in one way, those meds saved me from dying, from killing myself. On the other hand, they also almost brought me to my death. So in between there, somehow I recognized that I had some addict behavior going on and um, decided that I wanted to get off of all of those meds. And I went to the VA to do that. And they told me, that they didn't have a facility for me to go into to detox. So I told the lady, well, then I'm just going to go jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was really serious. I was like, you know what, f*** this lady. Excuse my language, but I was really pissed. You know, um, 
at this person who's a clerical person who approves or denies veterans going into rehabilitation. And, and I couldn't believe that she was like that. So when I said that to her, she told me to go, to go to the facility after I told her I was thinking about jumping off the bridge. We know that substance abuse is such a profoundly common part of post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you were there asking her for help, how could she possibly imagine? Because she was a clerical person. She, this is what's the problem with the VA is the screening process and the people you have to go through in order to get authorizations for things aren't always medically trained or screened. So when I was in crisis and asking, you know, this lady to help get me placement somewhere to uh, medically detox off of these meds, she saw a big dollar sign and said no. And then once I told her what my solution was, she said go. So I did go and um, I stayed for 14 days and I did get clean and cold turkey detoxed off of methadone and clonopin. I can now get to a calm place that feels almost like that kind of numbness that's just as good it's this internal piece you know I just didn't know that I could harness that again you know and so I've really been working hard these last five years on me you know and who am I and what have I been through and you know forgiving myself for allowing myself to make some choices in my life based on you know my trauma experiences some of the choices I've made haven't been the best you know and I forgive myself for that because I didn't rape myself, you know, and I do feel like the military sort of stole part of my life, you know, as a result of their reaction or lack thereof and in, in, in their lack of protection. You know, they didn't protect me um, from myself or from anyone else after that happened. Kate, we're going to have to stop in, in a second. And so I want to just ask you two more questions if I can. Okay. All right. I want to ask you about justice. So you get benefits and treatment through the VA, but your rapist, what happened to him? What was your thinking about whether to prosecute? It was never an option. I never saw an MP. I never saw an attorney. I never spoke to my commander about it. It stayed right there in the lower enlisted ranks and was talked about like gossip and fodder for gossip. And I even had non-commissioned officers, in other words, sergeants above me, that I reported this to. After I reported it to my battle buddy, I went up up my chain of command. And um, each of those people knew the rapist and told me that they didn't know what I wanted them to do. And I said, I would like him to be arrested. I mean, he's gonna do this to somebody else. He was so violent, like it's a given. You know, and really, it was just, I couldn't believe how unfazed these adults were. Just totally couldn't help me. Didn't want to help me. So it was literally, there were no legal channels for you to prosecute. Mm -mm. I was on a downsizing military base, so we didn't even have MPs on our base. So I was stuck. I was really stuck. So my rapist actually probably lives in Chicago unless he finally got busted for raping somebody else. Um, But that's where he was from. And uh, I've looked him up. I've tried to find him, make sure that he's not going to, you know, be someone I bump into in my life. And uh, I can't find him anywhere. But um, my gut tells me that he was probably caught doing that again. And uh, 
he's he's either incarcerated or dead. You know, and I don't know about justice. I don't know what that would feel like. The only justice I've ever felt is the day the VA said, okay, we believe you based on your factual paperwork. We'll give you benefits now. You know, and then I didn't have to live poor anymore. And I started to receive disability benefits from the VA every month. So that's money, you know, that I so that I can live. But really, I mean, it's just always felt like hush money until the last five years when I've been able to speak out and really get the attention of leadership and make some changes. We have victims that are speaking out and a movie that's just like life changing, you know, with the Invisible War film. So once we started showing that to the active duty, initially they were upset that we made them look so badly. And then they realized, well, they better take responsibility because everybody can see the jig is up now. I mean, you have on camera in this film exposing leadership that's done nothing about this sexual assault problem for 20 years. And um, it's military leadership. It's And they don't have training for that, you know. So So what do you do? So as a victim, survivor, what I wanted to do is get some alone time with those leaders. And I've done that. And I've been able to change some hearts and minds. How did you do that? How did you get alone time with military leaders to tell them your story, Kate? Uh, I stuck with the Invisible War movie. I mean, my part in it was so minute. But what it did was enable me to offer to military leadership some either one-on-one time or some training for their unit. And once I started just suiting up and showing up to different um, sexual assault response coordinator offices at different military bases all the way from here to Washington State, I've been able to make contact with a lot of leaders and I've had something to do with getting a really inappropriate sexual assault response coordinator who was a doctor and had been in that job for 10 years. Um, He was so inappropriate with me and the other survivor that I was with that I told the commander and they did an investigation and found out he had been quite a hindrance to other victims of sexual assault on that base trying to report crime. So he was fired. And I felt so good about that because... How would have they? How would have they known otherwise? So, Kate, you have become. I mean, you have been. Sounds like so effective. I mean, in the past five years, you've been in a movie. You've managed to meet with leaders and really tell them your story and make an impact. You've been able to stop someone who was being a hindrance to other survivors getting justice. Mm-hmm. Does this feel like this has helped you heal? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's exhausting work. And because it's emotional and it's so deeply rooted inside of me, it's something that I have to take breaks from. So I'm kind of on a break from it right now. But on the break, I look back at everything I've done and I, for the first time, get to be proud of myself again. You know, I mean, how long has it been since I've been successful? You know, even with my hobbies, if you would have asked me when I got off of all those drugs, what are your hobbies? I didn't have one, not one hobby, and I'm still struggling to find a hobby, you know, yoga, guitar. I'm trying all these new things, just just trying to be human, just trying to be like everyone else, you know. I had a really normal response to a very abnormal, violent, traumatic experience. 
And the more I convince myself that my reaction was completely normal, and the more I look at how I've been able to be successful in other ways in my life, um, that builds me up and makes me feel like there's more to be had from this life, you know, for me. This is just the beginning. I'm so glad. Yeah. It's wonderful to hear that. Kate, I want to thank you so much for your courage and telling your story to me and to so many others. Really thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for looking into this issue and, you know, giving us a platform to share our stories so we can help prevent lifetime, you know, misery from something that's preventable. I want to ask you, if people want to watch The Invisible War, how can they find it to watch that movie? The website, notinvisible.org, has the link to the film. We'll put that link on our website. Great. If you like this show, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And if you want to learn more about trauma, we also have a whole series on trauma that aired in the winter of 2010 to 2011, which you can find along with all of our past episodes at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.